Hello and welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout for Wednesday, October 28th, 2020. I'm Fraser Kane, publisher of Universe Today. This week, we're going to be talking about sprites in Jupiter's atmosphere, water on the moon, uh, Starlink, and the hollowed-out shell of a dwarf galaxy that the Milky Way gobbled up billions of years ago. Joining me this week, on my screen, I've got Morgan Renberg. Morgan. Hey, Fraser. Happy Rockets. <laughs> Happy Rockets. <laughs> for, for people who missed it, we spent about the full five minutes just just arguing over, before the show, arguing over um, whether Starship or New Glenn will be the first to, to work. Answer? Rockets are cool. Rockets are cool. Answer? Who knows? Uh, rockets are cool. We've also got uh, Kimberly Cartier. Kimberly, welcome back. Hello. And for the record, I don't really know anything about rockets, so yay. Uh, pointy, pointy, pointy end goes up. The pointy end goes up, the hot end goes down. Hot end goes down. Yeah. And the rocket goes boom. I don't know. <laughs> I hope not. Or slowly goes boom. It sort of does, though. Yeah, yeah. It really sort of does. Yeah. Um, and we got uh, we got Chris Carr. Chris, welcome back. Hello, I'm happy to be for, be back for my uh, first showing for my sophomore season. Is this your? Uh, this is your sophomore. That's awesome. Yeah. How's how's everything going? In uh, you're in in sort of this the heart the the hot zone. How's it all going for you there? Oh, a lot of Zoom meetings. <laughs> I've I've mentioned this in the past. Just how wonderful this side of things has been for me as an interviewer because everybody is now deeply understands zoom they've got way better setups way better lighting i don't need to hold up my instructions anymore very often um it works out great so yeah no absolutely all right uh so before we get into this week's special guest i just want to remind everybody that if they want to be a part of the show go to the Weekly Space Hangout crew. This is the community, the executive producers of everything that we do. They pick the guests. They organize to bring them on the show. So if there's some aspect of space and astronomy, research, science, astronauts, astronomers, anyone that you want to bring onto the show, join the Weekly Space Hangout crew. They'll make you an executive producer, and uh, you can then reach out to anyone you want. So go to wshcrew.space. All right, let's get into this week's guest, and we've got Dr. Natalie Cabral from the SETI Institute. Natalie, welcome to the Weekly Space Hangout. Thanks for having me. All right, so I always ask, who are you? What do you do? Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> do, do a do? lot. So. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I get in trouble a lot, but it's good trouble. Um, I explore extreme environment as an astrobiologist, trying to understand how we search for life beyond our planet. And uh, the other half of me is uh, uh, being director of the Corsican Center for Research at the SETI Institute. So very exciting stuff and very busy. Zoomed up like everybody. (laughs) (laughs) We all just live in Zoom. Um, So let's talk about some of the the projects from the research side. What are some examples of some of the projects that you've worked on? So uh, going back to what we said about the search for life, uh, there are a couple of things you need to understand is what we are looking for when we're searching for life, where we should be looking for it, and how we should be looking for it. So this is what I'm trying to do in different ways. I I go to extreme environments. I dive into very high lakes. I go to the Andes and and, and try to go to places that look like Mars uh, a long, long time ago, uh, almost 4 billion years ago. But I am also very interested in, in um, understanding how we look for that life. And I also 
uh, help building uh, uh, robotic experiments like the Planetary Lake Lander, which was a, uh, a, a prototype for a splash landing on a uh, lake or a sea of Titan. Oh. And we did that in the, in the Andes too. So looking at exploration for life in many, many different ways. And what I like is that it brings together people from uh, the biology side, from the geoscience side, from the engineering side, the technology and planetary science. It's really, it's really fun. We were talking about this before the show that, that astrobiology is this entire field now with hundreds, thousands of people working in it. And yet, of course, the goal of finding life anywhere else than Earth still has yet to be officially comprehensively done. And yet it is, it feels like this field that is just uh, exploding. There's just so much uh, interest going in. There's so much interesting projects. I love to focus on a lot of these. Um, what do you think is sort of bringing the, it to the rise? You know, you've, you've had a chance to work on this for much of your career. Does it feel like the golden age? What's, you know, what's sort of causing it to be so, such an exciting time? It's uh, it's the perfect storm, but a good storm. It's yeah. an intellectual storm, and what's happening is that uh, you know astrobiology is connecting dots, and this is what I like to compare it to. So you are taking disciplines, uh, many different disciplines, and you put those people together. They approach a question from so many different angles, and at the nexus of their perspective, then all of a sudden you have more questions, and then you are trying new things, and at the same time. In the past 40, 50 years now that we have started to exploring planets, uh, all the fields of science, and it's not only geology or biology or etc., they have been making incredible progress. It's not only planetary exploration, it's not only extreme environments, it's the way we are questioning things and the tools we have to question. Everything is just going exponentially, you know, uh, exploding. And, and so uh, this is this convergence of uh, intellectual approaches and technological approaches that are here for us. And we are this generation that really is opening the path. Not that, you know, we were not having the same questions before, mm -hmm. but we're starting to get tools that are giving us answers much faster. It, it does feel like there's sort of two main parts to this, that, that you've got the the discovery that life exists in more and more extreme environments here on Earth, places that nobody ever thought would be possible. Um, life kilometers below the ground, life hugging the ozone layer, life in, in extremely alkaline and acidic lakes and things like that. And then at the same time, you've got, we're finding those kinds of environments in other worlds. We're finding places you know, looks like there's some kind of salty seas underneath the ground on Mars, that there's a clearly liquid on Titan, that there's all of these icy ice worlds with their liquid oceans underneath. Is it like partly like it's like the extremes of Earth and the and the environments of the rest of the solar system are starting to overlap in ways that people never anticipated before? Yeah, you, you nailed it. Is that in the past few decades, we went from a definition of you know how do we search for life which was basically the habitable zone and this is a linear distance this is you have your star and you are within the habitable zone or you're outside right and then planetary exploration came and then we started to understand that there are environment you might be outside 
the habitable zone, but there are still environments that can be habitable. Look, Enceladus, Europa, and I mean, look at Pluto as well. Who could have thought about that? I mean, this is mind boggling. They are so far away. So everything is changing. And not only that, but as you said, the research in extreme environment is showing us incredible things. And also life as primitive as it can be, the places where I go, we are finding microorganisms that are the same than the first one that evolved 3.5 billion years ago. They are very primitive and they correspond to other planetary environments. Something else that came that changed completely the game 10 years ago is exoplanet, the discovery of these different planetary environments. And now all of a sudden we have this gallery of new climate, of new planets, of new environment that we can model. And on top of that, you have the tool, AI, machine learning. You put evolutionary biology, you put extremophiles, extreme environment and exoplanet, and all of a sudden your brain can expand and start thinking in terms of life, not only as we know it, but also as we might not know it and uh, being able to map it in, in much more profound ways. Uh, so based on what we know from the most extreme life here on Earth and then the environments that, that have been found, what do you think is the most habitable place that's not the Earth at this point for any kind of life that as we understand? So, so if you did have the most extreme life forms on Earth could go to the most habitable places in the solar system, what do you think that that crossover well, the icy moon definitely the icy moon and mars uh uh mars uh the, the thing with mars is that obviously at the surface it's becoming uh, uh a little harsh even for the most extreme environment although i would say that contrary to most of my colleagues i don't think that you know if there is still life on mars today and i do believe it has to be there uh i don't think it is that deep um i've been roaming too many extreme environments to think that life cannot adapt much closer to the surface. But what I'd say is mm. that equally, I would, I would say that, you know, the icy moon and, and uh, Mars for life as we understand it, uh, Titan is really intriguing. Titan mm -hmm. is really intriguing. And to me, this is the lab where we are going to learn in our solar system to start searching for life as we don't know it. And there is another way to, uh, to try and search for life as we don't know it which is uh, thinking in terms of uh, Carol Cleland's uh, theory of the shadow biosphere as mm -hmm. well. Uh, so this is a theoretical uh, tool, whereas Titan and uh, Mars and, and the icy moons are, are, are real rocks and you can play with them. Um, in terms of life as we don't know it, what do you think is, is some of the kinds of ways that we could try to search, say a place like Titan, as you say, it sort of has all the, has all the hydrocarbons going on. It's got access to water. It's got access to, to energies, but it's cold. <laughs> so, well, I don't think that cold is a problem. Except for me right now in that room, it's very yeah. cold, but, uh, it, uh, you know, I see, I have seen, uh, life adapt to so many things and it's not as cold as Titan, obviously, but I had a little microorganism trapped in ice for an entire winter. We brought some of that ice uh, to our lab and it stayed in the fridge six more months before we got to it and to, you know, uh, to analyze it. And when we started thawing it, then the little zooplankton started swimming like nothing happened. Took the plane, you know, got transported from the Andes to our fridge. 
Um, so life is, re is resilient. And I'm not talking about bacteria. I'm talking about complex microorganisms. Right. Here. So um, I would say, you know, cold is not, is not something, it's not a showstopper for me. <laughs> Uh, as long as you meet the metabolic needs of right. life, it's going to function. But I think that we need to stop necessarily thinking in terms of what's familiar to us. And I think that at this point in time, astrobiology is making an interesting turn. And I, I really love it because I think we had this discussion a little bit uh, earlier uh, in trying and defining life. The, the problem we do have when we are searching for life somewhere else is that we don't have a definition for life. And as I told you, I don't think we need a definition for life. A definition for life is a tool to search for something in a very specific context. Right. It, right? It, you know it when you see it. You, well, not necessarily, but at least you are taking the steps you know, to... Uh, uh, that goes back to the, the nature of life, but let's not talk about that now. What I think is important at this point in time in astrobiology is we are starting to think in terms of what are universal, you know, parameters or, par uh, uh, or universal evidence for life. What can be universal, not only specific to us, but universal. Yeah. What are the universal signature of life? What are what we call agnostic signatures of life? And there are also things that life does. It's not the only thing that does, but life and the cosmos as a mathematical truth to it. And so life and nature are fractal. And now, if you are looking for patterns and deviation to patterns, what else better than AI can help us do that? So astrobiology right now is exponentially developing those fields where you are searching for life with mathematics and physics and not only chemistry, although you can look for pattern and right. recognize this pattern through mathematics. But it is interesting. I mean, we can see how difficult it has been just to confirm. I mean, there was the, the Mars meteorite, the Allen Hills meteorite. There's been the phosphine discovery on Venus, which I think we're about to about to watch that start to get dismantled. There was, of course, the, the Viking experiment, and there have been other things as well. And it's so hard to get an unambiguous signal that life has been found. Uh, there was a question from here from Visto Tutti. What instrument would be needed to unambiguously detect life? Like, obviously, if you saw a tree or some, some rat on Mars scamper past the camera, then you would know you found life. But, but for the kind of life that we're expecting, what, what do you think it would take to unambiguously say, okay, we found life? That, that's the holy grail, right? And, and you're right. And, uh, uh, you know, the more evolved that life is, the easier it's going to be. If tomorrow you have a flying saucer landing on the, you know, on yeah. the White House uh, lawn, um, then it's pretty obvious. If you are finding some techno signatures somewhere, it's pretty obvious. But as you go towards the transition from prebiotic chemistry to life, if that transition exists, then you have a problem. And at this point in time, we're not that good uh, at understanding, you know, what's an unambiguous. Uh, there isn't one that is unambiguous now, but for all the examples that you mentioned early on, Viking and, and the Allen Hill meteorite, and I was an extremely, uh, you know, I, I was very close friend with Dave McKay, and I discussed with him that he didn't agree with his conclusion, and we had long discussion. He took some of my sample from the Andes to go through the process because he was honest towards uh, what he was doing. But all of these have a common thread. 
for Viking, for Helen Hill, for Fosfine, is a lack for us to understand completely or enough of the environment of these planets or the environment of the rock or the discovery because life and environment co-evolve, right? This is a co-evolution, which means that a planet will give you the physical and chemical condition for life to evolve and will give you a typical kind of life, uh, a specific kind of life. But then when life appears, then it changes everything. Look at what it did on earth. And then you have changes in environment, life adapts. Mm -hmm. And then life releases something up in the atmosphere. And then all of a sudden you have oxygen in our atmosphere and then everything changes again. So you need to understand the environment to at least have a background that you can deduce stuff from. And then like life uh, creates this equilibria. These are the kind of things that we are looking for. But to tell you that we have an unambiguous signature for life today, no, we don't. Yeah, yeah, no, we definitely don't. Otherwise, I think there wouldn't be all these arguments about it. But it, it really does show how difficult this process is going to be. And that, and that I think a lot of people are waiting for that announcement that life has been found, but it's probably going to come in little bits and pieces and just by discovery after discovery, confirmation. And even the people who are working on it will be like, I'm, I'm like 75% sure we found life, but I'm, I'm still not certain. It's going to stay as, you know, one of the hypotheses for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you see what I'm referring to here. But uh, I think that, you know, uh, again, by learning more and more as we're doing how to understand the environmental background, then we're taking great strides towards yeah. making that discovery unambiguous. Um, it, th there is a point where you can put that much meth in, uh, in an atmosphere, for instance, uh, for it to be related to only geology. Um, but what that does is that when you are making those discoveries, and this is what the good that came out of the Viking experiment, what, what good came out of that is that NASA created this integrated program so that we could understand the environmental background. We went with the Mars Global Surveyor, that was the geology, then mm -hmm. Mars Odyssey, that was the climate. And then finally, we put spirit and opportunity on the ground and now curiosity. And then again, now we have a good idea of the background, uh, what the background is. And so we are sending perseverance, which for the first time is some, somewhat going to look at biosignatures. Right, yeah. Um, uh, but it's a process. Yeah. I think that unless a, a, a rabbit jumps in front of the <laughs> rover on Mars, uh, it, you know, it's going to be a tough one, but yep. it's a, it, it is a very worthy one. Oh yeah, well, it's the and, most and, important question that humanity can possibly ask. I think it's, you know, it easily goes into one of the most important scientific questions that face us is, are we alone? It, it, it is, and it's not only a scientific question, it, it reaches out to so many other levels, you know, uh, of questioning. Uh, yeah. Some people are asking this question from a spiritual standpoint, from a physical, and they are not excluding of each other, but Mars is special. You know, when I hear, uh, people saying, why do we insist with Mars? Because it's dead, it's desertous. We don't know that it's dead, but it's definitely desert. Uh, it, it's the possibility what we, they have, you know, we have exchanged material with Mars and that our own heritage mm -hmm. here on Earth is gone because of plate tectonics, because of erosion. 
And if we shared any sort of lineage with, with Mars, then those rocks that show that transition from prebiotic chemistry to life, they're still sitting somewhere on an outcrop on Mars. Yeah. And it, it, we are looking for a family tree maybe there. Oh, that'd be amazing. Yeah. I mean, if, we, if there is a family tree, that, that means one thing. And if it's completely different, then that means something different. Either yeah, one is I, fascinating. I, so um, if, if people want to follow your work, you know, you're the uh, director of the Carl Sagan um, Center. So if people want to follow your work as well as the Carl Sagan Center, where should they go? Well, you can go to the SETI.org, uh, which is the website of the SETI Institute. You can also join me on Planetary Landscape on Facebook, uh, uh, where I'm, I, uh, uh, you know, I am I'm talking with people, um, commenting on images or news, or uh, trying to uh, keep a conversation going with a little over 1.4 million people now. <laughs> a I'll keep you busy. You got to have but, some time uh, for not, work. Not too. the whole four. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. are not all answering questions. But this is what, I, what I'm doing, trying to you know, entice people, uh, getting them interested in space and understanding how important it is to ask those questions that they do have a societal impact. In fact, uh, when you know, uh, many people think that planetary space exploration is a waste of tax, uh, taxpayers' money, I think that they've understood how much these explorations and impact on their daily lives, which they don't yeah. see, they use every single day, they would change their mind. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Weekly Space Hangout. Really appreciate all of your work. You're an inspiration. You and uh, I, let us know, promise, when you find aliens. I will. will. Thank you so much. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. All right, take care. Bye. All right, let's move on to the news this week. Chris, I choose you. It's like Pokemon. Oh, great. Lovely. So I choose uh, you. All right. Yes. And so uh, I'll be talking about hollowed out shells around the galaxy. So th this is a very, very recent development. The, I think the paper came out this week. Um, so, I, so I think to put this, this uh, discovery in context or potential discovery in context, I think we could start out um, about where, like, like, what was the motivation for this research? So, uh, so we've known for about 20 years or so about like this, this strange grouping of stars uh, in the Milky Way stellar halo. And this, this sort of clustering is, it's sort of in the direction of the Virgo constellation. And so it, it kind of gotten the, the name of the, uh, as the Virgo overdensity. Mm -hmm. and, and, and there have been a lot of like, sort of going back and forth about what, about what could be causing this Virgo overdensity. And because the strange thing about it is that it has stars that are going both towards you and away from you. When, when usually what you expect when you find these overdensities is that they have some bulk motion in, in the same direction. Right. So the fact that you had that, that sort of sort of disagreement, sort of stars moving away from you, sort of stars going towards you, it, it, was a, it was a strange uh, uh, a dynamical curiosity as to why you could have that. And so the group... So the group's research uh, that they recently came out was was building off prior work that they had published last year, uh, which was proposing that the reason is the reason why you have this Virgo overdensity is that it's actually a, a hollowed out shell of an old dwarf galaxy that that the Milky Way uh, consumed uh, uh, three billion years ago. Wow! And actually, and actually remember this quite well because the the, the lead author on the study, uh, Thomas Donlin. Uh, from the from the Rensselaer Institute, he actually gave a talk at Columbia uh, last year, and and so when I found the so when I found the article this week, it, it really struck with me. Uh, and so so what came out this this week was sort of building on that prior research, 
and, and showing not only is the Virgo overdensity uh, a potential shell, but that there are also other uh, similar structures uh, in the Milky Way's uh, halo. And you get this beautiful simulation that was uh, that was included uh, in the paper. Uh, and so it sort of show, shows you how you can get this, uh, sort of like this multi hollowed out shell structure uh, from a, a radial merger. Uh, and so, and so that, that was really sort of the major uh, takeaway from this paper is that major is that these radial mergers are somewhat rare for for disk-like uh, systems. And so the fact that you're that we're seeing this in the, in the Milky Way is is really something. Uh, and I'd be happy to go into sort of the sort of the, the meat. Yeah, of, well, I mean, I was looking at the, at the image. I'm sort of thinking about. I mean, I know we're in the process of gobbling up, say, the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy. Yes, but it's a more obvious galaxy is that just because this is uh, it this one happened a lot longer ago right so 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 i think here is we really have to understand like how like how how different orbital properties of of dwarf galaxies produces different uh, remnants uh, and so if you have uh what you call sort of a tidal merger which is what's happening with sagittarius is where you have the disk in the center and you have the, the dwarf galaxy orbiting on a somewhat more circular orbit like that. And so as it's as it's being as it's spiraling into the center, it's it's losing material. And the material that, that's losing starts to trace out the arc of the orbit. And that's where you get stellar streams from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And stellar and galactic dynamicists, we love stellar streams because the the, the orbits are literally written in the stars. Right. Uh, right. And so, and so they're a great way to sort of model. So they they have great utility when you're trying to model the evolution of the system. I mean, part. it's kind of like archaeology, right? Like you're looking back in the in the history of the Milky Way and just sort of like pulling off these strips that were once galaxies, and knowing oh, yes. this one hit the Milky Way, got gobbled up, then this one, and you can kind of piece back the history of the of the formation that built up the Milky Way as it is today. Oh, exactly. Uh, we, we actually re refer to ourselves as a as galactic archaeologists. Yeah. Uh, um, and but but in this case, the the reason why you get sort of the shell structure rather than rather than streams is when you have a a radial merger, you can kind of think of it more like a spring, where you have the the galaxy at the at the center, and you have the the dwarf galaxy at the end of the spring, and sort of sort of falls in and kind of oscillates back and forth. Like as it slowly gets consumed, and so as it reaches the furthest point uh, in its oscillation, it's it's shedding it's shedding stars, and so it's not it's not hard to imagine then that you as it fall as it falls in and comes back, you'll have stars that are coming towards you and stars farther going um, that are, that are going away from you. Right. And so that right. and so and so that's kind of the motivation for this idea that we're actually what we're actually seeing here is a remnants of of a radial merger that hasn't prior probably been been detected right and do you think that there are more of these to be found i mean is the is, is the technique applicable was this like the brightest version and now they can just use this in other ways so so this gets to a, to an interesting uh, consequence of this research and one of the reasons why uh it's it, it's still very much in question whether or not this actually is a, a radio merger uh is because there there is evidence of of a of a prior radial merger in the Milky Way eight to ten billion years ago, and that's sort of colloquially referred to as the Gaia sausage merger. <laughs> yes, yeah, I've heard that before. Uh, and so, sort of thinking was that 
the thinking of that is that you had one of these one of these major radial mergers eight to ten billion years ago, and and so one of the one of the conclusions that the author makes here, or one of the or one of the possible uh, sort of consequences, is that the Gaia sausage and this radial merger that we're seeing here are actually the same event, and that, right. the, and that the Gaia sausage didn't happen eight to ten billion years ago, but that it actually happened three billion years ago. Oh, interesting. And so that's sort of like the radical like sort of interpretation of these results. I'm I'm personally skeptical of that. Yeah. But uh, it is it is something uh, that we really have to consider uh, that these radial mergers may um, may also be the, the remnants may also be lurking in uh, in the halo as hmm. well as as the streams from from other other mergers. And so I mean, are these really coming from thanks to Gaia data? Like, is Gaia what's setting off this revolution in in understanding the history? It's got to have been the greatest boon to 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 galactic archaeologists, right? Oh yeah, oh yes. My advisor tells me every day how, how great <laughs> everyone, how, everyone thank Gaia, <laughs> and then we'll move on. Yeah, <laughs> yes, because because Gaia has given us like such improved uh, measurements uh, to to billions of star uh, billions of stars in the Milky Way that we can actually start uh, testing our our, our theories uh, with, with present day observations, and it's connected with these other surveys that are looking at the chemistry of stars, and so. So giving so this gives you like a full like chemical kinematic picture of the Milky Way that you can then connect to your theories about the Milky Way's formation and evolution. Yeah, yeah. I it's funny, like we're still part way through Gaia, and I feel like the 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 next release is gonna be the big one. Like like we're still I mean, obviously, people are still digesting the previous releases, but upcoming releases are gonna have things like, oh, here's an additional 50,000 exoplanets that we didn't know about, you know, go, go ahead and start trying to confirm those and not to mention all of the other data. And it's, it's such an amazing, like really, you know, people always ask me like, you know, what's your favorite mission? I'm like, Gaia, <laughs> just cause of the, just the, the amount of science that's been pouring out of it. I mean, you know, until James Webb or Louvoir launches, but for now it's Gaia. Yeah. Um, awesome. That's fantastic news, Chris. Uh, thank you so much. All right, Kimberly, what have you got for us? Well, I have some sprites for you, but first I have to say you invoked, you, you said the name, you said James Webb, which automatically pushes the launch back a month. Oh, does it? And oh, adds no. another what was I $100 thinking? million dollars onto the price. Yeah. So okay. thanks for that. No, no problem. You jinxed it. <laughs> I, am, I am post, uh, yeah, I'm post being worried about that. No longer yeah. care. I suppose that's yeah. true. Um, James so Webb, James my... Webb, James Webb. There. <laughs> Beetlejuice, it's not going to summon the telescope magically. <laughs> well, maybe that's how it works, yeah. All right, what have you Only. got? Science. Um, so, yeah, science. Uh, this delves into one of my favorite new topics that I've only just started like really digging into this past year, and that is lightning on other planets. Um, and it, the, the planet in particular that I'm talking about now is Jupiter, uh, and what's really cool about this is, you know, we, we've detected lightning, all sorts of lightning on Jupiter, on Saturn, on Uranus, on Earth, obviously. Um, but it's all sort of been the standard type of lightning that we would expect, like bolts of lightning, um, giving off very similar signals to the type of lightning that you'd see coming off of a thunderstorm. But what was just detected by the Juno mission 
uh, with its ultraviolet spectrograph was a different type of lightning that we see on Earth, and it's called a sprite, or an elf, or elves, I guess, um, which is a really, really horrible acronym. Don't look it up. You'll lose all your faith in astronomy. Oh, no. Is it like a backronym? Is it like a bad it's, backronym? It's very, very bad. Don't look it up. <laughs> I, <laughs> it took like three lines in my notepad to write the whole acronym down. Oh. Um, anyway, the Juno mission uh, and its ultraviolet spectrograph detected, I was looking for auroras on Jupiter, which Jupiter has auroras, very beautiful ones. And it was looking in the ultraviolet at the auroras and then sort of in the corner of one of its um, images, it saw this ultraviolet flash where there wasn't supposed to be one. And then it kept going and it saw about 11 of these flashes uh, over some period of time. And what was strange about these ultraviolet flashes was they weren't at quite the right frequency for normal Jupiter lightning. They weren't in the right place um, around, you know, this Jupiter's sphere where most of the lightning exists. And it wasn't at the right altitude for most of the traditional uh, Jovian lightning that would come off of, you know, a storm cloud. But what it did very closely resemble was the type of flashes we see on Earth from sprites, which are sort of these um, many miles wide flashes of light that they take like a millisecond of light. And it's this uh, giant sphere, like 10 to 30 miles wide at times. Wow. Ab above a thundercloud, like right. many kilometers above a thundercloud that has these tendrils of lightning that face downward. So it sort of looks like a big jellyfish in the atmosphere. <laughs> Does for it, like do they reach the ground or are they still... Like, do they actually reach they're the ground still in the way a lightning They're bolt still pretty does? far up. Um, they... I'm, I'm not sure if okay. sprites generally reach the ground just because of how high in the atmosphere they normally right. are and how briefly they flash. Like, I'm talking, like, millisecond flashes. Mm -hmm. um, elves are sort are just like sprites, just much, like, ten times bigger. Okay. Uh, but still just as fleeting. Um, transient luminous events is what they are called. And, and, and why, the the, the why duration of the... Why are they? Because yeah. electrostatic builds up in the atmosphere, and they but why above? I mean, why are oh. they up in the up in the atmosphere? Um, I don't fully understand that physics. I'm going to okay. be fully honest there. Um, why sprites exist above the? Why it exists above thermal clouds? Or um, just why they exist? At I would, all. I would imagine it has to do with different currents of ions in the atmosphere, and the conditions that exist above um, a thundercloud produces the right conditions for this flash of light and the tendrils going downwards. Right. I mean, lightning is all about electrostatic currents. So the the duration of the flash, the height, the location, the frequencies that it was observed in Jupiter's atmosphere all points to something like a sprite or like elves, um, which is something we've never seen on another planet before. Um, so if Gaia is my favorite mission because it sort of kind of is, um, Juno comes a very close second just for all of the yeah. new and interesting things that it brings us about Jupiter. Uh, and you know, it's, it's, it's tiny, but fierce, this mission. <laughs> yeah. Well, and uh, you know, we always talk about how like they weren't even going to put a camera on it. Yeah. I always talk about Juno cam. This was not a Juno cam. No, this no. was not a Juno cam <laughs> discovery. This was um, one of the science instruments that they, they planned. This is one of the actual yeah. planned science instruments yeah. um, doing doing excellent lightning science on finding uh, unexpected types of lightning on other planets, which is just very cool. Um, and it, I think the coolest part is that this lightning might be pink or blue or 
some color that we're not that we don't see on Earth. Right, because the color is defined by the chemicals in the atmosphere. Yes. Right. Yeah. So on Earth, sprites are red usually. Mm -hmm. On Jupiter, they might be blue. Oh wow. Um, it's interesting. They're finding auroras in more and more places in the solar system, not necessarily like what we have here or even what they have on Jupiter. You know, they've been found on on Mars in the in the on the backside of Mars, away from the sun. A comet has even been found now with an aurora. Yeah, the comet's not the comet's not really an aurora because it's not from it's like um, from a magnetic field, but it looks an awful lot like an aurora. It's fine. But I, it's it's an aurora. just very very cool. Yeah. Nice We're calling it blues. Aurora. Awesome. That's very cool. All right. Morgan. Let's talk about the moon. We oh, want to go back. I'm going and... to resist a rant do about... We, do we really want to go back? Are we sure? <laughs> we want to go back to the moon. We want to we go want back. To... And when we go back, we want to stick around. None of these little pinky two, three day uh, trips. We are going to stay. We're going to build a lunar base. They're going to be lunar vacations, all that good stuff. Yeah. Uh, but to have that happen, we need water. Uh, and we need more water than we can plausibly bring from Earth. You know, we ship water to the space station. That's one thing. Getting water all the way to the moon is going to be another challenge. Fortunately, we think that there is water on the moon waiting for us. And we've thought this now for about a decade based on uh, spacecraft observations of these permanently shadowed craters on the moon. And you peer inside these permanently shadowed craters and you see the signature of what looks like ice. Uh, but there's always been this kind of like nagging uncertainty about it because the same uh, wavelengths of light emitted by water uh, which, of course, is H2O, uh, are also emitted by hydroxyl. And hydroxyl, which is, think of it as alcohol, is uh, OH. And so it's not like a full proper molecule, but it's a functional group on molecules that emits with many of the same properties. Right. And so we've assumed, because of the structure and the positioning of these uh, observations in the past, that what we're looking at is water. But we haven't known for sure. And we haven't also known really quite how much of it there is. Uh, and so this week, NASA shared two sort of disconnected uh, but complementary studies about water on the moon. So let's talk first about those uh, craters near the poles. So these are craters that are totally shadowed, uh, and thus the temperatures in them are cold enough that the ice can survive. Uh, and we've seen these in a whole wide variety of, of craters. We've seen these ice signatures. But we haven't looked everywhere. And so this study used topographic maps of the moon uh, to find all of the depressions on the surface of the moon uh, that had the potential to be permanently shadowed based on the, the orientation of the moon, the moon's orbit around Earth, Earth's orbit around the sun. They did these really complicated simulations. Uh, and this is just kind of crazy. They found all of the depressions down to the size of a square centimeter <laughs> that could potentially be permanently in shadow, which are places that we could potentially have ice. Yeah. And when you add all of that up, what you find is 40,000 square kilometers of potentially icy locations on, on the moon. And so that is uh, quite a lot of, of ice. Uh, and it kind of expands our imagination about the locations in which these things can be. But they're all around the poles because the geometry just doesn't work 
to have places near the equator or even at the mid latitudes where you don't have sunlight at least some part of, of the day. And so that's where the second study comes in. The second study looks for water in areas that aren't permanently shadowed. Uh, and they did this using one of our other favorite missions, which is SOFIA. Uh, and SOFIA is a big old uh, Boeing 747 with a hole chopped in the side of it and a telescope sticking out. And they use SOFIA to make uh, spectrographic observations of, of the moon. And the real critical thing here is that they used a different wavelength because SOFIA is sensitive to different wavelengths than the ones that were primarily used for these spacecraft observations. And this particular wavelength uh, is emitted by water, but not by hydroxyl. And so if we see a signal for water, then we know it actually, honest to God, is water and not right. this imposter that, that could be trip, tripping us up in these polar regions. And they, uh, I and, mean, so, sorry, so they were thinking of like possible ways of, of formation, like you could get, I think, like the solar wind impacting the surface of the moon, mixing with oxygen and forming this hydroxyl, which would give off this, this false signature for water. Right. We know there's the oxygen in, in the rocks. We know there's a lot of hydrogen in the um, solar wind. And when you smack a bunch of hydrogen into oxygen, once in a while, you'll create uh, a hydroxyl atom. And those atoms, uh, if they bounce freely on the surface, will get lost to space. But once in a while, they could uh, sort of stumble their way into one of these permanently shadowed areas and kind of build up. Right. And then we go with our, you know, big space straws to go get the water we need for our space station and find, oh boy, actually there's nothing drinkable here. Right. Um, and so they're using Sophia and they're looking for the evidence of water in places that aren't in these permanently shadowed craters and they find it. They actually find a, a tremendous amount of it spread across the polar regions, but not in the um not in the craters themselves and you know on the face of it this is kind of weird right yeah. the whole point the is right the whole point is that the sun hits the surface and warms it up too much to allow ice or liquid water to remain on the surface and and so the reasoning here is that this is water that actually isn't sort of nakedly exposed to space Instead, this is water that is probably in vapor form and probably trapped within other, uh, other compounds. So one suggested formation is you have a, you know, a comet or something hits uh, the moon. And of course, it instantly vaporizes that water, but it also vaporizes the surface of the moon. And that stuff all gets mixed together. And when it starts solidifying again very quickly after the impact, some of that water gets trapped within the crystal structures hmm. of, of that material. They described it as sort of maybe being glass-like. Huh. Um, and this process seemingly could have been quite efficient. They said you could find about one uh, water bottle's worth of water in every uh, cubic meter on average of lunar soil that they found. Right. Which is a lot. Yeah. Like a, a water bottle per cubic meter is, I mean, you wouldn't want to like have to live by farming that, but it's not, this is not a negligible amount of water. Right, right. Um, which is, which is cool. The flip side is that getting it out of that glass is probably not that easy. And so, you know, in some ways, this is kind of like presenting us with a great opportunity and then pulling it away at the last second because, 
hey, you don't want to go all the way to these permanently shadowed craters and, you know, deal with these hundreds of degrees below zero temperatures to find the ice in these craters. Good news. We have water all over the moon. Right. Just Bad dig news, anywhere you want. You got water. Dig anywhere you want and you're going to find it. But you're going to need this really complicated processing uh, strategy to free your one bottle's worth of water from that one cubic meter right. of of lunar regolith. Like you might have to somehow grind the regolith into a powder to release the water into some kind of vapor, have some other system that's collecting the water out of it, and then some place where you're dumping all of this material overboard. Yeah, it does sound pretty Right, this extreme. is not an aquifer or something that we're going to be able to leverage, <laughs> right. you know, in our first few lunar missions. Um, and so, but still set aside the, the human spaceflight aspect of this. And it, you know, it really does kind of reinforce this, this notion that, you know, the solar system is a wet place. And every time we've looked and thought someplace was dry, actually, it turns out there could well be water there. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just, there's this extra layer of complexity in the, the makeup of solar system objects that we're still sort of being surprised at every time we we discover it. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the biggest, I think the direction that things are going is that we're finding like even in asteroids like Bennu or like Ryugu, that there's probably large amounts of, of water and other volatiles just under the surface. There's probably mountains of water. I think someone was talking about Phobos that you would easily, as you drill, if you tried to drill a, a base into Phobos, you would come across enough of the volatiles and water that you needed to sustain your your habitat that that was thought the entire inner solar system was thought to be bone dry. And now it turns out that you just get under the surface. And this idea of of comets delivering it makes a ton of sense that that we still see comets rampaging around the solar system today. And so if they're smashing into the moon, they're delivering their water somehow. And And the nice thing about, you know, having billions of years is that none of these processes have to be particularly efficient. Right. You know, they just have to be not perfectly inefficient. And over, you know, thousands of cometary impacts over hundreds of millions of years during, you know, during the late heavy bombardment, you build up enough of a reservoir. And then if you can efficiently not lose it, then you're stuck with it forever. And and we're finding that these processes turn out to work in the favor of more water in ways that we weren't really primed sort of a priori to imagine they would be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so uh, we just now need some human beings to go to the moon in only four years and and start to begin our permanent human inhabitation of the moon. One step closer. One step, one step closer. All right. Uh, we've got a little more time. So let's talk a little bit about Starlink before we go. Sure. So we've been seeing this big, you know, just endless stream of, of Falcon 9s launching Starlink satellites. I think we're up to 14 operational flotillas of, of satellites launched into space. Uh, and finally, they've accumulated enough of a constellation that they're ready to start large-scale testing to show us how it actually works. And I think last time I was on here, so a month ago, we talked a little bit about how they were making uh, this available for people fighting the wildfires Mm -hmm. and communities that were damaged by the wildfires in the Western U.S. We saw some other 
stories in the last month about some Native American mm -hmm. uh, tribes that had been given access. Um, but now a lot more people are getting uh, a chance to try it out because they've launched their, their public beta. And so if you live in relatively high northern latitudes uh, and you're one of the lucky people who was um, selected, you can actually plunk down money today to receive your Starlink internet kit. So what does it cost? And so it costs you $500 up front. That buys you the cool space antenna mm -hmm. to connect to the satellites. And then $100 a month. And we don't know if this is going to be hmm. their final pricing. Uh, it could be higher than this. It could be lower than this. Yeah. But it's not crazy, I think, is kind no. of the, the bottom line here. $100 a month is a lot for internet. That's less it, than I pay for internet. But if you're in a relatively rural area, it's probably less than you're paying, yeah. and it's vastly better. So they're saying that beta customers should expect speeds of between 50 and 150 megabits per second. Wow. And, and pings of 20 to 40 milliseconds. Uh, and now there there will be brief times where the service still totally drops out. Yeah. So if you know if your life is running a e-commerce site off of your home bandwidth uh, from the middle of Nebraska, this is probably not the service for you yet. Yes. But it's offering something that is just sort of worlds different, orders of magnitude yeah. different than what is available to rural Americans oh, yeah. and to rural people all over uh, the. Uh, the world. You know, my parents have been on a waiting, you know, I've had broadband in my city where I live for 15, you know, the 17 years that I've lived in this city. Um, no problem. And my, my parents live on a small island just, just off the coast of this city. And they've had just an absolutely terrible internet connection for that entire time they were only able to get a, like a, a high speed internet connection but they get about 1.5 megabits down and about 0.5 up like it's just barely enough to browse the web and send email you know it's really hard for them to be able to watch television etc uh they're on the beta list they can't wait to shift over to go to starlink it's it'll be a complete game changer for for so many places it's it's I think, you know, on the one hand, Starlink destroying our, our astronomy and especially radio telescopes. On the other hand, you know, this was one of the big unknowns that I had always had, which was like, what's it going to cost? Who's going to be able to get it? And so if it is regular people at 99 bucks a month, that's, that's pretty compelling. Well, and, and one of the key features of the beta is that there is not an NDA. And so, you know, for the first time, really, we're going to get sort of no BS uh, evaluations of how well it works. And, and that ultimately will sort of be the deciding factor about, you know, whether this was all worth it. Yeah. Because if this, as we've said this a million times, if this proves to be, you know, a reasonably priced gateway for the next billion people to get online. Yeah. Then then you can make a, you know, a solid moral argument about why it's worth um, sacrificing mm -hmm. you know, some yeah. aspects of astronomy to achieve that. If this is going to be an unreliable, finicky uh, thing, just so you know, billionaires can get Netflix at their Jackson their Hole yacht. Yeah. ranch, <laughs> uh, then you know, it will have been an yeah. unmitigated disaster. And we're 
you know, more than one step closer to finding yeah. that out now that real people will be able to test it at real yeah. houses in real places and share their, yeah. their feedback. I, <clears throat> so again, I, you know, I, I, for a while tried to find out what it would take to get my parents better internet to service that Island. And it would be in the millions of dollars. Like you go to the service provider and for, to, to get the people on that Island, you need an investment of millions of dollars, but now you don't need it. Now you could, and you could do things. I mean, you think about things like, you know, the, as you said, you know, there was tribes, you know, um, that were getting installations like, yeah, it would cost say $3 million to run fiber optic or, or cable to the near, from the nearest center to that location. But in this case, you could set up one of these terminals, set up a really good Wi-Fi transmitter, and then you can, you could blanket your entire area in high speed internet for the 500 you know for the 500 dollar cost of the of the of the receiver plus whatever's going to cost for your your wi-fi transmitter and so it's just there's nothing else would be able to provide that level of, of service so uh i'm hopeful but also curse you elon musk for t- destroying astronomy yeah yeah, I mean, we're, we're not going to know how this all plays out. Like, I wish, I wish these regulations for what the pricing would have to be, what the, what the service levels would have to be, what the NDA would have to be, should have been locked in from day one. And the fact that we're having to just wait and see what we get f- frustrates me. But yeah, well, here, here we are, and at least finally we're going to know. Yeah. And, yeah. and that will, will be an important determining factor for policymakers in uh in the future to figure out what to do yeah. uh as as these kinds of networks yeah. proliferate for for most people it's not going to be for you but for they're not even going to offer it to, to yeah. you in in most people if you yeah. live in a place where you can get 100 megabit service any other way yeah this they're not going not going to give it to you yeah. you're not this is not for you to topple your cable providers you know hegemony as over, much as you hate uh, your cable provider as, as desperately as we would all <laughs> like to take our local fiefdom and burn it down uh starlink is not the answer yeah but for the people who don't have that option yeah they have no it, internet that this is going to be a revelation uh and and it's exciting, you know, notwithstanding all the challenges, to think about the opportunities that that will enable for people to to live in places that they haven't been able to live before, to yeah. have jobs and livelihoods that weren't available in those places before. And it's certainly exciting to think about the, the possibilities. Um, we just have to understand the costs as well. Yeah, yeah, and and hopefully mitigate the the consequences to astronomy. Don't forget about astronomy, Musk. We're watching. All right, uh, it's time to wrap up this week's show. Morgan, you're on my screen. What are you working on? Where can people find out more? Yeah, so come down to Fort Worth Museum of Science and History. Check out our awesome uh, climate change exhibit, Project Planet. Uh, And if you want to see what I'm up to, you can check out my website, morganrenberg.com. Awesome. Kimberly. Well, people can always find me on Twitter at AstroKimCartier and on EOS.org. Um, I've been getting ready for American Geophysical Union's fall meeting, which start, which is three weeks this year, all virtual, three weeks. Oh my gosh. You see my, I'm already going a little bit 
Uh, yeah, like that's a there. that's a whole other uh, conversation. Is yeah, is, it's a whole other conversation. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, no, it's going to be three weeks of really amazing science, and it's actually free for students this year because it's all virtual. So if you haven't been able to go before, this is a really great time to um, to learn just amazing science from amazing scientists from all over the world. Um, and I've just been getting all of my news articles ready for that for that meeting. Just a lot of stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, Chris, what are you working on? Where can people find out more? Well, I'm not, I'm a grad student and I'm trapped inside, so I'm not doing much of anything else. Uh, but, but when I do doing, when I do do exciting stuff, you can follow me on Twitter at the real C car. Awesome. All right. Uh, when, how is your grad school journey going so far? How, how much, how much more, when, when do you get your, your PhD? Well, uh, I'm the second year, so probably not another year. You never ask that, Fraser. Really? Never ask a grad student when. Yeah, we manufacture PhDs. Both of you got your PhDs thanks to the show. So, you know, I just like to keep track of of how how many PhDs we've uh, we've manufactured. All right, Um, uh, this week I've got nothing interesting to talk about. All right. Nothing wow. I'm doing, uh, but actually we are. So I'm just going to point you at our at the weekly newsletter that I'm going to be writing again on Friday. I do this every week, 25 to 30 stories. I write them all by myself, and it's like turning into like a gigantic magazine at this point. So if you haven't already, go to Universe Today. Think about starting a website. Yeah, <laughs> I should put start all a those stories on there so people can look at them out of order. Oh, that makes sense. Hire some staff. Yeah, hire some staff. Sure. Big brain ideas over here. Yeah, you really guys have really got some good ideas. Um, I'll call it like like space universe now or something. All right. Um, so if uh, but yeah, you can of course go to universe today as dot com slash newsletter to sign up to my newsletter. All right, and put everybody back on the screen. There we all are. Thank you, everybody, for watching us today. Thanks to the moderators. Special thanks to Nancy Graziano, of course. Every week, couldn't do this without you. Um, all of the, uh, and our special guests. That was a fantastic interview. So uh, we will see all of you watching next week, and I will see all of my co-hosts in some random configuration in the coming weeks and months. Stay safe, everybody. See you next week.